This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. What a privilege. What a privilege. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 113. I heartily agree with everything Tim said. I want you guys to keep planting churches. Long to fill East Tennessee and our region with churches. Uh, Primarily because that was my experience. So uh, the New Testament says the church is the household of God. The family of God, as I was talking about with my kids on the way here. And so in Cornerstone Church, I found a father. I found many fathers. Cornerstone Church, I found more mothers to nurture faith in my heart. Found brothers and sisters. I found a family. John Calvin says the church is a gymnasium of faith. My faith was not worked out in an isolated hike or search for God. My faith was worked out in the gymnasium of the church of God, this church. So for that reason, it is an unspeakable privilege to be back here. I thank Bill, who just happened to skip today, and thank him for the honor. Thank all of you for the privilege of being able to sit under God's Word together. So if you'll look at me, Psalm 113, this is the Word of God. It says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Have you ever wanted to go back to being a kid again? To mornings of cartoons and cereal. To nights before any alarms or aches or anxieties woke you up from your sleep several years ago, I wanted to go back to being a kid on Easter Sunday. We gathered for worship that morning. Later in the afternoon, our family had a little last-minute simple Easter egg hunt in the front yard. We hid eggs all over the yard and trees and bushes and planters, some right there in the front center of our yard for my youngest son to find. We even hid a golden egg with five American dollars inside. 
We gather the kids on the, on the porch with eyes closed and on the count of three, unleash them into the lawn. And my oldest kids look beyond the ones in the center of the yard, hunting to find the hard-to-find eggs and especially the golden egg. They ran about tossing egg after egg in their basket, darting this way and that, this way and that at the sight of the next egg. It was a race against time and a race to find them all. My youngest son, however, did not do the same hunt. He, he ran into the yard, found the first egg that he saw in the center of the yard. He grabbed it, plopped down, and immediately was trying to open it. Kim and I ran to him and said, son, son, hop up. The hunt is on. The, ki- the eggs are everywhere. You got to get it. You got to get active. Keep looking for your wicked brother and sister. Take all the eggs. But my son was unswayed. He wanted that egg opened, and he wanted to see what was inside. We helped him open it, and then we said, all right, all right, get up, get moving. But once he saw that the egg had a fruit in the foot, candy inside, he wanted it now. He ripped it open and began eating. We, we kept trying to get him to find more eggs, but it was all over in his mind. By this time, both my kids, or my other two kids are there. We're gathered around, and we tossed a few more eggs in the basket. But the hunt ended with all of us laughing as he ran around the yard, swinging fruit by the foot and chomping down with delight. And I thought, I want to be a kid again. But I was also struck that my son is made for worship. Though he was too young to communicate or even understand it, he wants joy more than anything else. It's hardwired into his default setting. He doesn't have to try to do it. It's part of who he is. He has an unrelenting desire to see, to know, to taste, to treasure, to rejoice. He's hardwired for worship. What makes us unique as human beings is not that we can do things that animals can't do. What makes us unique is not that we can talk or reason or write computer code or form relationships or any of those things. What makes us unique as human beings is that we can praise. More precisely, what makes us unique as human beings is that we can praise God. We alone of all creation are formed and appointed to this task. The praise of God is therefore the most natural human activity. Again and again, the book of Psalms, it is just a hymn book. It's just a a book telling us how to worship and it's calling us to praise, to praise God with the people of God in the presence of God, giving him the glory he deserves. And so again and again, the Psalms urge us to this most normal human activity, this most fundamental calling, this most awesome privilege, the praise of God. This morning, Psalm 113 is perfectly suited to urge us again. In a word, where we're going is let us continually praise God for His glory and His grace. Very simple point. Let us continually praise God for His glory and His grace. I'm going to break this out in three points. The first is praise the Lord at all times. Praise the Lord. I think this is the substance of verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord at all times. This psalm begins with a call to praise. 
And that's not surprising in a book that's devoted to the praise of God. It's also not surprising because this is a hymn of praise. That's the structure of this psalm. And it begins with a call to praise. Look in verse 1. He says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Three times in the first verse, praise. Hallelujah is the word. Bless or admire, adore, exalt, bless the Lord, the God who is God and the God who is our God. John Webster says it well. If praise has a single center, it's in the acknowledgement that God is God and God is our God. And so the psalmist is trying to return us to this privilege of praising God. And so he immediately tells us to praise the Lord at all times. In verse 2, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Notice the from's there. From the rising of the sun to its setting. The psalm is telling us, provokingly telling us to praise the Lord at all times. Let his name be praised. Let who he is and what he's done be lifted up at all, from this time forth and forever. From now until the end, regardless of what happens, we sing it so well. And be that my vision, what, what, uh, 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 heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O Lord, over all. Resonating with what the psalmist is saying, praise the Lord at all times and in every place. That's what he's saying. The sun rises and its, its rays touch every part of this earth. And, and so he's saying, praise the Lord from the rising of the sun. That's not just all day for you. That's in every place under the sun. The name of the Lord should be the song of every person on this earth. At all times in every place, let the name of the Lord be praised. But the call to praise is also specific. Look there. Praise, O servants of the Lord. This psalm is not calling anyone and everyone to praise the Lord. There are psalms that do that. Psalm 150. This psalm is not calling the priests or the singers or the worship leaders to praise the Lord. This psalm is calling the people of the Lord to praise the Lord. There's no higher title for a creature of God than servant of God. I love the way Psalm 116 says it. Oh, Lord, I am your servant. You have loosed my bonds. I am bound to you. I am yours. A most fundamental title for those who've been set free by Jesus Christ. And so praise is the most human activity, how much more so for those who've been brought from death to life through Jesus Christ. But why does the psalm tell us to praise the Lord five times in three verses? I mean, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, maybe one or two, but three, but five. Why do we need five exhortations in three verses? Because praising God, though it ought to be the most normal, most natural activity, praising God is not often natural, easy, spontaneously welling up or flowing out. Praising God is more like wearing a new shirt 
or showing up to a party where you don't know anyone else. Praise is often awkward and difficult. When we gather to worship God on Sundays, regardless of how long we've been around, praise is often a challenging, somewhat unrewarding experience. It may be because our our minds easily wonder, one second relishing the words of the song, the few seconds later rehearsing tomorrow's to-do list or yesterday's discouragement. It's often because we're easily distracted by a child walloping his brother or sister, or by a person arriving late next to us, or by our tendency to constantly compare ourselves to others around us. Why is it so hard to do the most fundamental human thing? Because even though praise is the most normal human activity, it's something we must learn to do by the grace of God. Praise on this side of heaven is under the shadow of the fall. Praise is is frustrated by our physical frailties, our aching back, our worn out legs. Praise is hindered by hardship, dogged by doubt, gutted by gnawing guilt. Praise is tainted by our tendency to make everything about ourselves, always evaluating everything according to what we think what we feel, what we want, until heaven, praising God, involves work. The reality, this reality, is not something we often discuss. As Oz Guinness once said, we worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Sobering indictment. One of my heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata, has got this so right. Johnny has lived for over 55 years with quadriplegia, and she knows that praising God, as many of you know, involves work. She says, I make myself be happy. I make myself sing because I have to. The alternative is too frightening. My girlfriends will tell you in the morning when I wake up, I know they'll be coming into my bedroom to give me a bed bath, do my toileting routines, pull up my pants, put me in the wheelchair, feed me breakfast, and push me out the door. She continues, I lie there thinking, oh God, I cannot face this. I am so tired of this routine. My hip is killing me. I'm so weary. I don't know how I'm going to make it to lunchtime. I have no energy for this day. God, I can't do quadriplegia. Maybe there's something you'd like to fill in the blank there. But I can do all things through you as you strengthen me. So God, as she's famously said, I have no smile for these girlfriends of mine who are going to come in here with a happy face. Can I please borrow your smile? I need it desperately. I need you. Someone who's realized that praising God is a fight. Johnny can do it for 55 years. You and I can keep going. So let me commend 
a different posture of heart as we gather each Sunday. Instead of perhaps a plastic church smile, instead of perhaps an I'm holding it together as best as I can grimace, instead of a perhaps staying on the sidelines, not going to get too serious composure, I want to commend you to bring your game face. Put down the coffee, maybe mark some paint underneath your eyes like Tebow used to do and come in ready to fight because praising God is a fight from start to finish. So at the call to worship, as Zach is talking, call your soul into warfare, taking thoughts captive, making them obedient to, the, obedient to Christ. You know, many times we think we should sing and clap and raise our hands when we feel it. But I can tell you the vast majority of times that I sing and clap and raise my hand is because I don't feel it. Because I don't get it. Because I don't understand. And I'm singing because I want to feel. I want to I love what God loves. And so I commend that to you. One of my favorite verses that I play out in my head as we're singing together is Psalm 143, 6. I stretch out to my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So, Lord, if you're going to find me on Sunday morning, you're going to find me fighting. I commend, I commend the helmet and shoulder pads to you for next Sunday. Verse 2, praise the Lord for his glory. Praise the Lord for his glory. The psalm continues very naturally, breaks into this stunning description of God's glory and greatness. Look at verse 4. He says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. That's, that's just a way of talking about God's power and rule over all things. God set his throne in the heavens, his kingdom rules over all. The name of the Lord is be to praise from the rising of the sun to its setting because the Lord is high above every king. Every ruler under the sun is just a puppet. He, he wields power that is only handed to him by the Lord because the Lord is on his throne from forever and ever. And he's not just above the nations. I like the way the psalmist says it. He's high above the nations. He's so much more lofty above the nations that we cannot even imagine. Then it continues, and his glory is above the heavens. Now, glory is one of those words that we throw around so much at church, I wonder if we know what it means. It's just a word that means weighty or heavy. It's words used to describe the weight, the worth, the value of God. Isaiah 6 helps us understand the angels ceaselessly calling out to the Lord on the throne, seated on the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Now, just hold that there for a moment. You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, we might think it would go to, full of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is this Lord. So, so naturally, the earth would be full of his holiness, but it says the earth is full of his glory. The psalm, or I mean not the psalmist, Isaiah is bringing together a very important thing and a relation between his holiness and his glory. 
His holiness is just a word that means his separateness over all that is made. There's an important connection. The holiness of God is how he's separate from all that is not God. God is not one with what he has made, like Hinduism or something like that. God is distinct. God is separate. God is above all that uh, that is made began in a point in time, but God never began. And so his holiness is pointing to his self-existent, his self-sustaining his self-sufficiency that God is separate from all that is made. And the glory of God is his holiness, his separateness going out throughout the world. We see the way this comes together in Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars, the mountains, the hills, they do not make God glorious. They don't add to his glory. They don't increase his glory. The glorious things he has made do not increase his glory. One iota, what do they do? They declare it. They announce it day to day, pours out speech night by night, reveal knowledge. They're showing off God's power and what he has made, saying that he is much greater than all that is made. He is separate. He is above. He is outside time and so many things. And so the whole earth is pointing to the glory of God. Isaiah 43, we too are called by his glory. We're stamped in his image to declare to the world that we are made by someone else. But let's press this a little bit more. He says, what does it mean that his glory is above the heavens? Isaiah 6 says the whole earth is filled with his glory. So what does it mean that his glory is above the heavens? The whole earth is filled with it, and yet his glory is above the heavens. Well, what the psalmist is trying to say is that we don't know the full story. We have a few press clippings. We have a few headlines. We have a few pictures. We have a few mountains, stars, and galaxies. But there's so much more to the glory and the greatness of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. The Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the God who was and is and is to come. He's separate from all that is made. He's not dependent on all that is made. He does not need all that is made. That God does not dwell in a temple made by man's nor is he served by human hands. But he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's saying his greatness his glory, the essence of who he is, is far above the heavens and the earth. Just as Job said, all that we see is but the outskirts of his ways, but a whisper. You ever thought about the Grand, Grand Canyon as a whisper? As a faint little picture? A puny little companion, uh, canyon? That's what the psalmist is saying. He continues with this awestruck wonder. I just love this phrase. Who is like the Lord our God, who's seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The Bible is packed with many of these who is like you statements, and this one is one of the best. One translation that we have for you says, who is like Yahweh, our God, enthroned so high he needs to stoop to see the sky 
and earth. Who is like Yahweh, our God, who thrones so high, he needs to stoop to see the sky and the earth. He's seated on high. He's like a king that sits on his throne. God is spirit. He has no form, so he's not sitting anywhere. That's a statement saying he is ruling way up on high. He's so high, he has to stoop to see the heavens and the earth. You know, we, we stoop down to throw a log on the fireplace. We stoop down to crawl into the crawl space. We stoop down to change a diaper. God has to stoop down to see the heavens. What is that down there? There's, there's irony in this, much like Isaiah's, kind of, I mean, Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal. There's, there's irony. There's, there's, there's powerful things going on here. There's imagery going on here. Saying, saying, so what is that down there? Is that the Milky Way? Is that the, I can't barely see. What is, hey, hey angels, what is that? Is that, is that a planet with people? And you thought God was like you. It's what the psalmist is saying. This implied in this emphasis is a stinging rebuke. We don't dig deep into the glory of God. We don't grapple with his immensity. We become bored with the praise of God because we think, I know this already. Zach, you've sang that psalm before. I know this already. We become distracted by the praise of God because of all the things we have to do and all the plans we have for our life. We get tired of the praise of God because it seems so repetitive and so same old, same old. But our apathy reveals nothing about us, or nothing about God and so much about us. Dr. Piper says, in the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of all-determining, so uninspiring instead of ravishing, that the responsibility to live for the glory of God is a thought without content. The words can come out of our mouth, I'm living for the glory of God, eating and drinking to the glory of God. But ask the average Christian to tell you what they know about the glory of this God that they're going to live for, and the answer will not be long. That's devastating. The psalm is telling us to dig deep. Go buy Charnock. I don't know if it's in the bookstore, but the existence and attributes of God. Find ways to ponder this unspeakably glorious God. Psalm is calling us to praise him in a manner that matches his matchless worth. It's calling us to fight, not for the, for the mere experience of an emotional high that Sunday mornings can often bring and are intended to bring. It's calling us to fight so that we see him clearly, that we know him truly, that we're amazed again and again at his relation towards us in Jesus. Point three, praise the Lord for his grace. Praise the Lord for his grace. The psalm concludes with an overwhelming picture of the grace of God that is freely poured out. First, we have to notice the verbs. 
that, that, that surface immediately, <laughs> who is like the Lord our God, who looks, verse 6, down on the heavens and the earth, looks far down, who raises the poor, who lifts the needy, who gives. So, so really what the psalmist is helping us to see, who is like the Lord our God, who's seated on high, whose glory is above the heavens. But the psalmist does not stop there. He said, who is like the Lord our God, who's seated far above the heavens, who looks far down, who, who uh, raises, who lifts, who gives, who is like this Lord our God. It's not just a story about the greatness of his character and the immensity of his nature that is above the heaven. Who is like this God is about his relation to his people. The reformer John Calvin (laughs) once said, we don't anticipate God by our words, by our obedience, by our knowledge, definitely not by our free will. Will No, the story of salvation is about encountering a God whose undeserved goodness is something we could never anticipate. So if you're reading through this psalm, the verbs are not something you should anticipate because who is like this God who is so separate, so holy, so wonderful and matchless in his worth is someone whose eyes are too pure to look on evil. And should have no relation to people like you and me. But wonderfully, the psalm says, he looks down and comes down. Look at, the first thing he does is raise the poor. <laughs> Look at verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Make them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. The, There's a careful emphasis upon where he finds the poor and the needy. You see that? He raises the poor from the dust. He raises, lifts the needy from the ash heap. The dust and the ash heap in those days are the place where all the trash and waste is gathered to be burned. There, the poor rummage to find anything that's useful and warm themselves beside the smoldering fires. Day after day, the poor and the needy lay beside fires covered with the ash of burned waste. There they lay at the place where no one wants to go, longing for something to change. This is a picture of utter desperation. Remember years ago, growing up, there was a house that we never went near. It was a few blocks from the YMCA, and we'd go up and play ball at the Y, but would make sure not to go by this house. It was a house with a Boo Radley type of guy living there. Something had happened to him. There were rumors about it. Whatever happened, he was different now. He had long, streaking black hair. He was unshaven, often walking around the yard, talking to himself and clearly wrestling with voices in his head, often wrapped in a, in a bed sheet, running and jumping, moving, sprinting around the yard. He's a man that the world had left behind. He's a man... No one dared to get close by. That's a similar picture to what we're finding here. 
The poor were not gathered at Market Square by the fire. They're gathered outside of town where no one goes, where no one is dared to be seen, where no one gets dirty. But that's the first place the Lord goes. <laughs> to deliver. This, this picture, wonderfully, is not just a picture of desperation. It's a picture of deliverance. <laughs> God goes first to the poor, the needy, the ones with no one there to help. He, he raises them up. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them to sit with princes. He who is seated on high seats this one alongside princes. This is a story about a dramatic change of circumstances. He delivers them. The poor people with no one to help, no one who could help, no, uh, no, no idea of a change of circumstance. But the Lord intervenes, and, and the grace of God is all about intervention. And so the Lord intervenes and delivers this poor and needy person. You know, this psalm is wonderfully generic because, generic, what I mean by that is we don't have a historical tie to it, so it's not trying to get us to tie to one person who is delivered by God because the deliverance of the needy is not a random occurrence for this God. It's not an isolated incident for this God. This is who the Lord is. This is what the Lord can do, delights to do, and will do in the end. The Lord comes to deliver those in desperate, in the most desperate circumstances throughout the Bible. God loves the those in financial distress. You want to know who the Lord loves? Who's he watching out for? The widow, the victim, the fatherless. The sojourner. More than that, God loves those who are spiritually desperate. That's the story. Isn't that the story of Jacob? Isn't that the story of Moses and Rahab and Ruth? And wonderfully, this psalm actually, uh, uh, the, the, Psalm 111 and 112 was sung before Passover when they celebrated each year. Psalm 113 to 118 was sung after receiving the Passover meal. To remember, this is the way the Lord treated them when he delivered them out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh with a strong and outstretched arm. And so they remember that our God is a deliverer. Wonderfully. This psalm is a picture of the deliverance that's pointing forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Derek Kidner says it in a way. Now, Derek Kidner is a power-packed, concise writer, but he says it in one sentence in a, in a wonderful way. Verses 7 and 8 anticipate the great downward and upward sweep of the gospel which was to go even deeper and higher than the dust and the throne of princes from the grave to the throne of God. That is what we're meant to see in this psalm. This psalm is preparing us, not, not just for an experience, this psalm is preparing us for a person who would come and, take a, and come and rescue us in a place much deeper than the dust, the place of death and damnation. Those who should endure the furious wrath of God forever. And wonderfully, a person who would bring with him, lead a host of captives, as, as Ephesians 4 said, lead a host of captives, a host of formerly captive, 
up out of the dust to the throne of God. Amazing. So we do, like Josh says, we sing in response to what Christ has done. We don't feel love or whatever. We, we're looking backwards before we look forwards. This is also this is a wonderful reminder. You may have come in with financial distress on your mind. Markets turn. Things are different. Jobs might have been lost. You may have come with relational distress on your mind. The unraveling of close friendships, unraveling of what, what you'd hoped for. Even chronic physical distress on your mind. Life is not the way you'd hoped it would be. The reality is, you know, the, the, the reality is far more serious. What is alertness, too, is that, that uh, we don't just need a change of circumstances merely. We don't just need a few more, money, uh, a few more bills in the pocket. What we need is deliverance from the wrath that is to come. And that's only found in Jesus Christ. I would I'd invite you to come to Jesus Christ. This meeting is a meeting where we're gathered around Jesus Christ, where people who believe that he is the only hope for the world, the only person under, which, uh, under heaven by which we can be saved. The Bible says, if you believe in him, you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and rescued from the real distress that's coming. There's a storm coming because the holy God can't look over the sins of sinful men. But there's another picture here. The Lord gives children to this barren woman. Whereas the previous scenario was given two verses, we have a half a verse for this startling picture. Look in verse 9. A, says, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. If the calling of God is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, if the most fundamental way, not the only way, women participate in the filling the earth is through bearing children, then the barrenness is a most distressing circumstance. We see women throughout Scripture who are broken with grief over the inability to conceive. Then when God causes them to conceive, they laugh. It's unbelievable. They rejoice. They're overcome with gratefulness. It's a not, this is a, just another dramatic change of circumstance, another reversal of fortune. God delights to deliver. But I think the psalmist is turning it a little bit to say God delights to deliver. He also delights to give an inheritance. He delights to bless and to give. Children are a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And so I would say, if I could take an aside to some degree on this main point of this text, if you're barren, if you're looking for children, I believe God wants to build your faith. Not in an object of your faith, well, in him, but not in the answer to your prayers necessarily, but God cares. God cares about the desires of your heart. God knows he wired you this way to fill the earth in this way. And so I would commend that prayer to you. But I think there's something for all of us here. 
a, a highlighting of the inheritance we receive. You know, it's been said that children, I mean, your parents are your past and children are your future. Your parents are your past. They tie you to what was. They tie you to a house. They tie you to a way of life of what was. And children tie you to what's in the future. Children are not merely, then, an answer to prayer. Children are the promise of a future, of of a name being carried on, of a legacy being carried forth, of the gospel, Psalm 78, going from generation to generation of something to live for. I like to say my wife, Kim, is her parents, we made it, baby. My wife is Vietnamese. Her family fled Vietnam on April 29th, 1975, a day before Saigon fell. They fled with their two young children, Kim's older sibling, Phuong and Yim, and they had $40 in their pocket. In God's providence, they made it to Nashville, Tennessee. Gradually, they made a home there. You know, when, when her mother died a few years ago, we were laying out all these documents, and we found a little bulletin from a church. can't remember the name of the church. They said, the winds have arrived. We need $517 to pay their rent for the next six months. I was holding this. I don't even know those people, but I want to tell them so many things about what God has done. And so they, they made a home. They, they found some jobs and they found a school. They found a way to live again. And 10 years later, they had a baby. You know why? Because they were going to be okay. <laughs> They were going to make it. I mean, that's what was going on. The gift of Kim was not the gift of a child. It was a promise of a future. And so throughout the Bible, God delights to not just deliver, but to promise and inherit. It's a promise that he is still committed to his promise to make a people that is as numerous as the stars. That is what's going on here. The psalmist is pointing forward to the core promise of the Bible, the core promise of Genesis 12. And again and again, the gift of children is not just an answer to prayer. It's an indication that God is keeping his promise, that God will not be outdone. And so when he delivers the people out of Egypt, he leads them to the wilderness. And when the first generation begins to die off, he says, I'm not done with them. Moses, you're not going to lead them in. But this people, Joshua, will lead them into the promised land. And when the people strayed and began worshiping other gods, when God brought judgment upon them and drove them into exile, when they were strangers in a foreign land speaking a foreign tongue God said again I'm not done with you one of my favorite messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is Zechariah 8 he said thus says the Lord I have returned to Zion that is Jerusalem and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem thus says the Lord old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with a staff in his hand because of a great age and the streets of the city shall be filled with boys and girls playing in the street that's what he's saying he's saying I'm not 
done. I'm going to be committed to this promise to make a people as numerous as the stars. And you know the story. God kept being kind to this people. He upheld his covenant. He raised a new generation, Nehemiah and Ezra, to proclaim, to rebuild the temple. How much more for us who are in Christ, who have been called sons of God by faith, who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of an inheritance we do not yet possess, who, the down payment of that inheritance, who God has raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. God doesn't just deliver. God is reversing the fortunes. God built the temple with money from Cyrus. God's reversing fortunes. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours through Jesus Christ. We'll be seated as princes to reign with him forever and ever. So, what's God saying? I'm not done with you. What are the press clippings in your life saying? God's saying, I'm not done. Your life's not going off a cliff. It's not spinning out of control. Your life is not on the side of the road broken down. Your life is kept. He'll keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The best is yet to come. Amen. What's going on? Let us continually worship and praise God. Praise God for His glory and His grace. I'll say one final thing. Well, a cluster of things, but they all on one heading. <laughs> right now, you are somewhere in the upward sweep of the gospel. You're not going to hell, praise God, but you're also not in heaven. You struggle. It may be because of an empty chair. Maybe because of an empty bank account. It may be because of an empty calendar. When all your friends on Facebook have a full calendar of so many wonderful things going on. Maybe just the emptiness of loneliness and desperation. And until God comes again, praise is not merely the most normal human activity. Praise is not merely our fundamental calling. Praise is not merely the most awesome privilege. Praise is, as John Webster once said it, the great revolutionary act. Praise is the way we stand on all that God has said until he comes to bring it out, bring it about in full. Praise is the refusal to give up, to give in, to give over, to discouragement. Announcing my call to praise is a refusal to say there's no way forward. 
It's a refusal to say this Red Sea will not part. It's a refusal. It's a big no to sin and death and Satan and sickness and disease. It's a call to hope, even hope against hope. It's a call to faith, not to view the invisible in light of the visible, but to view the visible in light of the invisible, in light of what God promised to do, what God delights to do, and what God will do in the end. It's a call to believe that God is God and God is our God. From now to the end. And so I love the way the psalm ends. It doesn't collect into a nice little final statement, final reflecting thought. It just ends, praise God. That's what we're doing. We're praising God. Regardless of how we had to drag ourselves into the assembly of God's people, we're praising God. The most important place the people of God can occupy in this culture, in this world, is their post of praise. Don't abandon the post. <laughs> Don't forsake the gathering. This death-defying, despair-disdaining, joy-creating post. What's my calling? I'm a praiser of God, a worshiper of God. Fundamental calling. Praise the Lord. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege Sitting under this word, we offer ourselves to you sincerely and completely. We don't, we don't want to go through the motions and just play the game. We want to live for you for real. We thank you for these wonderful pictures of your greatness and your glory and your grace. We pray that you'd seal up whatever's helpful in our hearts by the Spirit, testifying to us that these things are true and are true for us. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.